We have uh, recently been in a series, uh, beginning a series that, that I'm just calling Foundations, in which we are going back to the very beginning of the Bible in an effort really to reinforce some of our most basic beliefs. And uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to be in a very special section of that. We're going to be talking specifically about humanity, about mankind, about you and me. Asking questions like this, who are we? What are we? (laughs) Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing here? What does it mean to be a human being? Now, these are obviously very important questions, and not only just for Christians or for other so-called religious people, but even people who have absolutely no interest at all in the things of God are asking questions like this. Because, let's face it, we all have a vested interest in the answers. Everybody wants to know what, what people are. Who are we? What is a human being? But the world today, believe it or not, is in very little agreement when it comes to what the answers to those questions are. You'd think that after thousands and thousands of year, we have some, years, we'd have some idea of who we are. But we're still working on it. Let me begin by sharing with you the answer that atheism gives to these questions, not because there's a whole bunch of atheists out there that I'm trying to convert necessarily, but because even Christians occasionally wrestle with doubt about even God's existence sometimes, and also because most of the influential thinkers and philosophers of our day, the people in the universities, the people that are writing books, the people that are kind of shaping the way that we think at the highest levels, most of them are coming from the position that there is no God. Now, here is what the honest atheists say about who we are, about why we're here, about what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to live. I'm going to let the prominent atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell speak for them, because he has a way with words. And, and here's what he says from an atheist perspective about the nature of man, who we are. And what he has to say here may be a little bit hard to follow in some ways, because he is a philosopher guy, so he speaks in, in kind of lofty language. But hang in there and get it as best you can. I really want to come to terms with what he's saying. Here's what Bertrand Russell says. He says that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, and he explains this, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental co-locations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. That the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be hurled beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Okay, Russell is absolutely right, given his assumptions. If there is no God, if there is no creator, if there is no intelligent design, then the only hope for humanity is to embrace our hopelessness. To continue to trudge along 
in our meaningless existence and to try to do it as best we can with a smile on our face. And the only path to a happy life is to build it on what Russell calls the foundation of unyielding despair. Because folks, this is it. This is it. This is all there is. Now, I'm not trying to depress you this morning. And I'm not even arguing here against atheism or for God's existence necessarily because, look, just because something is depressing doesn't make it untrue. But I believe it's important for us to understand as we deal with our own doubts and in discussions we might have or as we think about what we hear some people say in thinking about the topic of God's existence, that if you subscribe to atheism, if that's the direction that you want to go and believe and embrace the idea that there is no God, then you must go with Bertrand Russell. You must go there. When it comes to the place of man in the universe, the place of you in the universe, the only destination, the only foundation for your life is is what he calls unyielding despair. No purpose, no meaning, no lasting progress of any kind, and in the end, no hope, because this is it. Those happy things aren't anywhere on the board for you. But nobody wants to live like that, right? So in order for an atheist to live an honest life, in order for an atheist to really live according to his beliefs and live an authentic life, he's going to have to find a way to extinguish that thing inside of himself that, that longs for something lasting, something meaningful, something eternal. He must find a way to silence or at least shout down that voice within him that says, there must be something more. There must be something more. Now you can do that. You can shout it down. You can ignore it. You can pretend it isn't there. But there's another option, and that is to ask the question, where in the world is that voice coming from? Evolution doesn't really give us the answer. But the Bible gives us a strong hint of where that voice is coming from in the book of Ecclesiastes. And you may know if you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament that that book is not exactly full of hope most of the time. It's a book that deals very honestly with the thoughts of people like Bertrand Russell. But it says there in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. God has created us to know intuitively that there is something beyond us. We can't see it. We can't reason all of our way to it. We can't really comprehend it. But it's, there's, there's something, there's got to be something outside of us. There's got to be something that goes beyond just our physical, temporary, earthly existence. Even the atheist physicist cannot look through his telescope at the heavens without feeling at least some sense of awe and wonder at the beauty and the order of the cosmos. Even the most staunchly atheist biologist does not bring his newborn baby home from the hospital and turn to his wife and say, Honey, isn't it great what an interesting animal we brought home with us? Why not? Because our hearts instinctively look for some higher meaning, some higher purpose, some greater definition of what it means to be alive, what it means to be human. There is something in us, and the Bible says that God put it there, that refuses to be content to build our lives on a foundation of unyielding despair. 
And so over the centuries, the great thinkers, regardless of their level of belief in God, have tried to figure out, tried to ascertain the nature of mankind. What is a human being? What is our purpose? What are our most basic needs? What are our most basic problems? And how can we solve them? In short, how can we live in a way that makes us most fully human? How can we live in a way that helps us to really take advantage of our humanity, whatever that is? And the answer to that is going to depend on how you answer the first question of who we are. If man is primarily a biological animal, as Darwin said, then what he needs is to be fed and kept alive, and he can be conditioned to respond to reward and punishment, leading to a better and more controlled world for all of us. If man is primarily an economic being, like Karl Marx said we were, then what we require is food, shelter, clothing, and the way to make the world a better place is to arrange it so everybody receives enough of these things. Makes sense. If mankind is primarily a sexual being, as Freud tells us, then his greatest need is to learn how to harness his sexual energy. If man is primarily a social being, his greatest need is companionship. If man is primarily a spiritual being, then his need is to connect with something divine and, and transcendent. If man is primarily a volitional being, meaning a, a person with free will who makes choices, makes decisions, if that's what we're all about, then his greatest need is something like political freedom, or at least to live with as few rules and restrictions as possible. And in what is easily the fastest growing point of view today, if man is primarily a psychological being, then his greatest need is for inner harmony, peace of mind, and to be made to feel good about himself. You've probably encountered that. You've probably encountered most, if not all, of those ideas in your life. And there is certainly some extent of truth in, in many of them. But let's ask the question, who or what does the Bible say we are? According to God's Word, what is a human being? Well, going to disappoint you a little bit. The Bible never comes out and gives a dictionary-style definition of what a human being is, but that may be because a human being is such a complex thing that to define us in just one way would not be enough. If you go for just the physical definition or just the biological definition, just the intellectual definition, just the social definition, even just the spiritual definition, you will not do us justice because we're more complicated than that. So what the Bible does do, even though it doesn't give us that dictionary definition, the Bible sets out some relationships for us. Now these relationships don't formally define us, but they do allow us to kind of triangulate our position, and, and by doing that, we figure out an awful lot about our place in the universe and who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. So let me, what I want to do now is read you the applicable scriptures we're going to look at today, and then I want to look at what these relationships are. And one, look at one of them in particular. So when you get Genesis 1, go to verse 26. We're going to skip around just a little bit in chapters 1 and 2. So chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Skip over to verse 7 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Go down to verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay. These three relationships I've talked about, the three relationships we see described here, are our relationship to God, our relationship to each other, and our relationship to the rest of creation. Our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, and our relationship to the rest of creation. And what I want to do over the next three weeks is I want to look at those three relationships really in reverse order. And the reason is really because that's the, the, the order in which Genesis presents them to us. And as we look at these relationships, there is a big concept that we're going to be interacting with very repeatedly, which is the statement that you saw three times in the passage we just read, that humanity was created in the image of God. In the image of God. Of God. Now, I could try to define the image of God for you up front. People have written thousands and thousands of pages trying to do that. But let's go the other way for now and try to build up an understanding of the image of God as we look at our relationships over the next few weeks. So today, we're going to talk about our relationship with the rest of creation, or if you will, our relationship to the environment. And you need to know, if you don't already know this, and you probably do, that our young people, the younger generations, think a lot more about this topic than we in the older generations do. I'm including myself in the older generations. If there is one constant in our educational system today, and you who are teachers know this very well, it is the call to protect the environment. This has become the number one ethical standard in the world. And it's taught K through 12, and it's on into higher education. And there are some very good and sound reasons for that. Let me quote to you uh, from, from a person I quoted from a couple weeks ago. His name is Freeman Dyson. He is a physicist. Uh, he is not a, a, what we would call a traditional Christian, but he does have some respect for the idea of God and for religion. But, but I quoted him in a different context a couple weeks ago. Dyson says this about what we think about the environment. First, he mentions the fact that environmentalism is being taught at every level of our educational system. And then he says this, he says, and the ethics of environmentalism are fundamentally sound. Scientists and economists can agree with Buddhists, monks, and Christian activists that ruthless destruction of natural habitats is evil, and careful preservation of birds and butterflies is good. The worldwide community of environmentalists, most of whom are not scientists, hold the moral high ground and are guiding human societies toward a hopeful future. 
Environmentalism as a religion of hope and respect for nature is here to stay. This is a religion we can all share. Now, a couple things to note here. First is that concern for our environment, what we Christians would call concern for our creation, is one of the rare things that we can all agree on, right? Unlike, for instance, religion. Think about all the strife. Think about all the violence and war and horrible things that take place in this world in the name of religion. People are constantly killing one another over their sectarian religious beliefs. But what if, what if there were one thing that we could all agree on? What if there were one thing that could bind us all together? One thing that we could teach our kids that would unite us and not divide us? Wouldn't that be worth pursuing? Let me tell you something. That is a huge, huge part of the appeal of the movement to make protecting our environment the foremost moral imperative of the next generation because it brings us together, because it's something about which we can all agree. And that's not totally wrong. But I want you to notice what else Dyson says. He calls environmentalism a religion. And this is not just a figure of speech. It's a real thing. Because Dyson understands that as mankind turns its back on formal religion, and that is happening all over Europe, and it's happening more and more in the United States today, as we turn our back on any kind of formal religion, not just Christianity, but the other traditional religions as well, this leaves a vacuum. It leaves a vacuum. If we're going to say no to these religions like Christianity and Islam and Buddhism and Judaism and, and Hinduism, that, we have, that these things have traditionally divided us, and even cause bloodshed, but if we're going to get rid of those things, we're going to need a new religion, because as, as TJ was telling us this morning, there are seven billion people today on, on the earth, and we all got to worship something. We need something else. We're going to need a set of beliefs that hold the world together. We're going to need a new definition of right and wrong. We're going to need a way to, to, to figure out what's true and to protect our beliefs against heresy. Above all, we need something transcendent and bigger than us. In other words, we need something to worship. We need something to build our lives around. And so this legitimate concern that we have for creation has filled that religious vacuum for many, many people today. And Christianity tends to be seen as the enemy here. And the reason is that Christianity has been the dominant religion in the part of the world that has developed the technology that has done the most to harm the environment. On the other hand, the more primitive and animistic religions of indigenous peoples tend to be respected because they are seen as more in tune with nature in its unspoiled and less developed state. And that is bringing paganism back into vogue today as a common religion. Listen. Not every environmental activist is a seed-eating, tree-hugging Gaia worshiper. But often the most influential voices in the environmental movement do carry at least an undertone of religious devotion, and sometimes more than that. And if you saw the movie Avatar several years ago, you kind of know what that looks like. However, what we need to do, and I hope you will agree with me here, is not to ridicule that point of view but to engage it in a meaningful way that affirms the care of creation without turning it into a religion. 
And we can start by trying to understand what Genesis 1 is telling us here about our relationship to the rest of creation. And there are two huge fundamental truths that we need to come to grips with when it comes to our relationship to our world. The first truth is one that Christians sometimes downplay or even ignore altogether. The first thing to remember when we think about our relationship to the rest of the creation is this, that we are part of it. We are part of creation. Now that sounds like maybe kind of a, of course we are, but we are, we're part of creation. Genesis reminds us of this several times in the way this account goes here in the first couple chapters of Genesis. For instance, mankind was created on what day of creation? Anyone know? The sixth day. Now here's the question. Did we get that day all to ourselves? No. 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 If you look back at Genesis 1.24, you will see that we share that day with the cows and the chickens and the bears and the salamanders and presumably the cockroaches as well. All the same day. While mankind is expressly said to have the breath of life breathed into him in chapter 2, verse 7, note in chapter 1, verse 30, that the animals also have the breath of life in them. And in the passage where God provides food for mankind in the same breath, he provides food for the birds and the beasts. And you know what? The diet isn't all that different. As my son continues to work on his doctorate in biomedical engineering, he has had the occasion to operate on dozens and dozens of rats. That's because, as it turns out, rats and human beings have a lot in common. It says, insert lawyer joke here, but I couldn't think of one. (laughs) No. Perhaps when it comes to the characteristics of things like our central nervous system, we can learn a lot from rats. And now this this is pretty useful to us. I consider it to be a gift of God that we're that close because we can conduct research in that way and improve the world and improve our health. But it probably should also humble us just a little bit, don't you think? But more than that, I want you to notice something that happens a little later in the story. We didn't read this part, but you already probably know the story. After Adam and Eve sin in Genesis 3, they eat of the forbidden fruit, and then God gets to the part where he's kind of handing out the punishments. And so first he talks to the serpent, and then he talks specifically to Eve about some things. And then when he gets to Adam, we expect God to pronounce a curse on Adam as a representative of the whole human race. But instead, he doesn't curse Adam. Did you notice what he cursed? He curses the ground. He curses the earth. And then he says to Adam, from dust you were formed and to dust you shall return. This is a pretty stark reminder for us, first of all, that we were made not from some heavenly material, but from the earth itself. In fact, we weren't even made, we like to say it's dirt. It isn't even dirt, it's dust. Dust is even less significant than dirt. That's what we're made of. But secondly, we remember here that our relationship to our environment is so close. It is so interdependent that a curse on the world is a curse on us. A curse on the earth, the thorns and the thistles and all that. A curse on the earth turns out to be a curse on us. In short, there is a solidarity. There's a deep connection between humankind and our environment. So much so, and the Bible affirms this throughout, that our destinies are tied together. We'll see more about this toward the end. But for now, the fact remains, unlike God, unlike God, we are part of creation and we need our environment to survive. In a very real sense, when it comes to human beings and creation, we're in this together. We're in this together. 
So it makes perfect sense that we learn to care for the rest of creation and preserve it as diligently as we possibly can. And in fact, the knowledge that we and the rest of creation are actually made out of the same stuff should give us a proper respect for it. There is dignity and worth in the creation, in the environment. However, we see here that being part of creation is not the whole story. We are also, in some sense, over creation. And furthermore, God has placed us there. Now, what does that mean? Well, you'll see in, in, in what we read here, there's a continuity in most places between the creation of animals and the creation of human beings, but there are also some definite points of discontinuity in the Genesis narrative. The language is quite different. Instead of let there be or let the earth produce. God, let there be light, let there be this, let there be that. Let the earth produce this, let the sea produce this. No. When we get to man, the expression is, let us make. Let us make. God doesn't just create the man. In Genesis 2, we see that he forms the man. Later on, he's going to fashion the woman, which is even better. But he doesn't just give man the breath of life. He breathes it into our nostrils. There's something obviously much more personal and intimate going on with the creation of man than with the rest of creation. And this, of course, is confirmed directly in verses 26 and 27. What did verse 26 say? Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish, etc., etc. Now, as we said, we're going to be piecing together this image of God idea over the next few weeks, but it's worth noting here that the very first thing that God says following this image of, man st- image of God statement is that mankind is to have dominion over the animal kingdom, and really over the whole earth, if you read the verse carefully. So we have dominion. Whatever the image of God in man is, whatever that means, it includes the capacity to provide leadership over the rest of creation. This is something that is unique to us as human beings, something you don't find in any other creature. And this word dominion carries the connotation of taking charge. Taking charge. Not in order to exploit or destroy something, but in order to provide order, in order to manage properly, to bring it under control, in order to make it better. This is the beginning of the NFL football season today. A lot of teams ended up last year in chaos, and in losing records, and everything was falling apart, and some of them hired new coaches, just like some baseball teams hire new managers, like some corporations hire new CEOs when things are going badly. Why? Because they want someone to put the pieces in the right place to manage the development and everything, and to, 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 to kind of bring order to chaos so that the different pieces of the team or the company or whatever can work together and complete what the company or the team is supposed to be doing. That's taking charge. And it's not just an option for us. We're commanded by God to do this. This taking charge is part of our job. And the authority that God has given us to do this is real. We make a difference. We really do. In chapter 2, we didn't read this part either, but you'll see that Adam there is giving the task of naming all the animals. So God made them. God made all the animals, but he doesn't name them. Adam gets to do that. Adam gets to name them. And notice that God doesn't overrule Adam. God doesn't say, that's a stupid name. Pick something else. And Adam probably came up with some interesting ones. But it makes a point there of saying, whatever the man called them, that's what their name was. And naming something is an expression of authority. It's an expression of leadership. 
not just anybody is authorized to give out names. Nicknames, yes. But not names. Grandkids are good at this, right? No matter how many times we try to get our grandson to call me granddad, he seems to rebel. He has recently decided that my name is The Guy. Now, I don't know how long that will stick. Hopefully not very long. But I will tell you this. My birth certificate will never say The Guy. My real name is the one that was given to me by someone who had the authority to name me. And in the case of the animals in God's creation, that authority belongs to us, human beings. And this naming is actually symbolic of a greater authority. We have a real responsibility to rule and to manage the rest of creation. And this may be a little strange to think about, but just as we need our environment, our environment needs us. Our environment needs us. Chapter 2. It says there, that God placed Adam in the garden. Why? To work it and to keep it. In fact, back in 2.5 it says there were certain forms of vegetation that God actually held off on creating largely because man wasn't there yet to make use of these plants or to cultivate them and care for them. So just as we are dependent on creation for our very existence, the rest of creation is dependent on us. Without us, the rest of creation will not achieve its potential. It needs us. It needs, it needs to be studied and understood. It needs to be protected and preserved. Just as God brought order from chaos when He created the world, we are commanded to bring order to creation. This is a reflection of God's image as we lovingly care for all that God has made. Yes, we make use of it for our needs, but we also manage it properly in order that the perfections of God's character might be displayed in His creation. So to sum up, this is the dual nature of our relationship with the environment. We are part of it. We are part of it, but at the same time, we've been placed over it. Now, what does that all mean as we kind of close here by thinking about how are we supposed to think and how are we supposed to act when it comes to this world. So some very kind of down-to-earth things, so to speak, all right? One thing it means for us is this, that our work matters. Our work matters. Your work matters. It is useful, it has dignity, and it makes a difference. And this is true even if your job is not directly working with people or, or, or being involved in some so-called noble profession. Human work as an expression of managing creation in any way is a good thing. We need to embrace that. Adam's vocation. God putting Adam to work preceded humanity's fall into sin. It wasn't the, the result of it. In other words, work is not a curse. Work is not a, it's a good thing. It's part of who we are as part of the image of God. I personally think that we will be working in heaven. I think we'll be enjoying our work. But I think we'll be working. It's who we are. Secondly, it means that we are free to explore creation and understand it better in an effort to meet our needs and to make life better for humanity. Technology in and of itself is not an evil thing. Mankind is not a blight on the earth even if we do end up using a lot of its resources. The earth was, in a sense, made for us, and we are commanded to make the most of it. But here's the flip side of that. We are not free to destroy or to mismanage the creation that God has entrusted to us and that we are ultimately part of. 
We are not to be exploiters, but stewards, managers, caretakers. We do not need to apologize for taking charge of creation, but we dare not use it carelessly or recklessly. We are called not just to use it, but to tend it and to keep it. And and we can use our God-given ingenuity not only to make better use of creation, but to take better care of it. The world needs marine biologists and forest rangers and botanists and needs veterinarians. All these people are involved in creation care at one level or another, and this is a good thing. Meanwhile, down at the micro level where most of us live, there are clearly and obviously plenty of things we can do just as part of our regular activities to be caretakers of creation, from recycling to avoiding overuse of electricity and water and minimizing pollution, any number of other things. And honestly, to do these things doesn't really meaningfully impact our whole lives a lot, does it? I'll tell you this, it also helps our witness, especially today. Furthermore, when we hear about damage being done to the environment or the potential for future environmental catastrophe, we need to take those claims seriously and interact with them on their merit. We don't need to agree with every policy decision of the environmental activists we certainly don't need to make a God out of the earth, okay? But to respond as some Christians do by saying, well, I know how the world ends, and it's not by global warming, so why should I care? That is both dismissive of God's creative work and probably damaging to the progress of the gospel at a time when there is precious little room to find common ground with our culture today, and this is one of the places we can do it. And then finally... When your extremely environmentally conscious friend comes up to you tomorrow and says this, you know, human beings are just a cancer on the earth. Mankind is just a virus. It's, it's because of us that the environment is being destroyed. What you need to say is this, you know what? You're exactly right. But then you go on and you say this, did you know the Bible says that it was actually our sin that broke the world in the first place? It was totally our fault. You're right. And you know what? I agree with you that we need to do whatever we can to cure this cancer and to make things right, just like we should do everything we can to fight the other kind of cancer, the medical kind. But you know what? As much progress as we make on that cancer front, we're never going to solve the biggest problem of all, which is death. And as much progress as we make restoring our environment, there's only one way to really heal it completely. And the Bible actually tells us how that can happen. In fact, it says in Romans chapter 8 that the whole environment today is groaning. Groaning. It, it's laboring along like an Ellinger with some engine with some, some misfiring cylinders. Kind of clunking along. And that's why we've got not just pollution and climate change, we've got earthquakes, we've got volcanoes, we've got droughts, we have every other kind of natural disaster, because that's what's happening to the earth. But one day, one day, Romans says, all of creation will be redeemed, set free, and that will happen when God solves for good the problem that caused it, which is human sinfulness. You see, Jesus, God the Son, actually became a man. He became part of creation, if that doesn't blow your mind. He died then in our place, 
to rescue us from the power and penalty of sin. And in doing this, he also rescued creation from its bondage and decay. So that one day, our environment will be perfectly in tune, perfectly clean, and perfectly beautiful with no problems. That is something that God cares about very much. But he also cares about you. Now, you may not be able to get through that whole speech with your friend tomorrow morning. That'd be great if you could. But did you realize that it's a true story? It's a true story. Redemption includes creation. Jesus is going to save us. But he's also going to save the world.